Um, my name is Isaiah Joshua Fetterman. I got all of them out there that you know. So uh, I am the media coordinator here at Alethe, and I have the privilege of preaching for you today. First things first, uh, parents, please dismiss your kids um, uh, to Alethe Jr. There's some volunteers over here that will guide them to where they will learn about something that is probably a little bit different than our topic today. Um, I don't know if you heard the scripture just now. It's a little spicy. Um, I was supposed to preach next week, and David was supposed to preach this week. For some reason, he had something going on, so I'm preaching this week. Uh, thank you, David. Uh, so uh, another thing, uh, as we go through this, we'll go through it together. It'll be great. Um, we have James uh, scripture journals for you. Uh, this is our free gift to you. So if you are new here, or even if you're a guest, if you just want to raise your hand, we will give this free gift to you. It has James on one side and notes taking on the other side so you can follow along. Uh, so there are people with those journals and just raise your hand and they will give it to you. It is our free gift to you. So um, these several weeks so far in the past couple months when we've had people other than Kevin uh, is one of the ways at Aletheia we love to engage, encourage, equip, and empower our members to use their gifts to honor God and to love and build up the church. As you all are a part of the church, our hope, prayer, and goal is to encourage, equip, and empower you to also use and grow each of your gifts to build up the church and to honor God. This could be through a plethora of things. Some of us are up here preaching. Uh, some help out with hospitality so that we do not go hungry on Sunday morning. Praise God. Uh, some are really patient with kids and they help uh, with the kids back there. I respect them so, so much. Uh, it could be evangelism, administration, uh, playing an instrument up here, singing, uh, helping out in the tech booth in the back. I love those guys. Uh, they help me not uh, go crazy. Uh, and there is a plethora of gifts that I even haven't mentioned. And this is our way that we want to encourage you guys to grow and to use your gifts for the Lord. And this is an example of that. So, also, today is Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to the fathers out there. Uh, this, interestingly enough, is actually my second Father's Day that I just happened to get to preach. And wow, what a blessing. I love Father's Day because I get to make jokes. So, I feel obligated and privileged to honor dads with the following joke. I have this great construction joke. I know some of you guys work in the construction industry, uh, but I'm still working on it. I have to hammer out a few kinks and nail the delivery. I just don't want to screw it up. And dad puns, that's how I roll. So hopefully you all enjoyed that. Yes, that's a clever pun as well. Um, thank you, yes. <laughs> but on a serious note, today we honor fathers. I know we come from a wide variety of families and fathers. Some had excellent dads who have stood by them and been an excellent example for them over the course of their whole upbringing. While some have had arguably terrible dads who have either walked out or not been the best in so many ways. But whatever the case, I would encourage you to reach out to your father or good father figure in your life and thank them for their care and investment in you. This is a day to give thanksgiving to them and appreciate what they've done. And wherever your dad lies on the spectrum I mentioned previously, whether they're great or not great, you can pray for them. You can ask that the Lord would bless them and draw them closer to him. And I would encourage you to take time and do that today for your father. Now to today's sermon, 
And no, it does not have anything to do with Father's Day. Uh, I don't know if you heard the text this morning, but it is pretty spicy. And in preparation for this sermon, I can say I have felt a lot of conviction and have been really challenged by this. So you guys only have to listen to it for about 40 minutes. I had to spend a lot more time in it. So uh, in preparation of that, before we dive in, let's pray. So, Father, I thank you for this time that we have together to come and dive into your word, that we have the opportunity to not just look at uh, the easy passages, but to look at the hard passages, to understand what you're teaching us, what you're guiding us towards, and ultimately to understand your love and hope in the midst of these passages. I pray that our hearts would be receptive. I pray that we would be hearing uh, you, Holy Spirit, that it would not be my words, but yours. I pray that you would come in this time and just allow us to grow and to receive and to go forth uh, encouraged and challenged by your truths. We pray this in your name. Amen. So I'm just going to give away my sources now. Um, why reinvent the wheel when you've uh, got good content out there? So I used a lot of this from Matt Chandler. He did an excellent sermon on this uh, passage, and it's great because it's from the Word of God. So the Word of God is great. So if you happen to be listening to a sermon from 2016, this might have some similar sounding veins. Um, that in mind, we have been going through James now for a couple months. Uh, we've been learning a lot of practical wisdom from him. A lot of what James does is practical wisdom and knowledge uh, with some solid advice. A few of them so far have been hearing and doing, not favoring some over others, how words can matter, the importance of godly wisdom, the importance of humility, and not boasting in tomorrow. That was a very fast overview, so if you want to go more in depth, they're all online. You can watch them uh, later today. And today we continue learning through some more practical wisdom that has huge implications and really challenges us at our heart. It starts very, very uh, forward, and it says, in verse 1, come now, you rich. Now, before we move on, don't worry. I did stop after four words. We're not going to go that slow through the whole passage. But I do want to really emphasize this. When it says, come now, you rich. And some of you hear that and like, oh, that's not me. I am not rich. But I'm here to tell you that we have a certain privilege and status here in the U.S. that makes everyone in this room truly rich. If you were to get a job today, full-time, at minimum wage for $10 an hour, comparatively, you would be in the top 10% of the world. A little higher, actually, but I'll say 10%. You would have more than 90% of all the other people in the world. And if it really comes down to it, there is at least accessible food and shelter for basically everyone here, which much of the world struggles to have. And all you college students out there, you're not exempt from this either. You guys get thousands of dollars from the government, paid through our taxes, uh, so that you can get an education that will hopefully lead to a reasonable job someday. So if you think you aren't categorized, categorized as rich, you are lying to yourself. I guarantee you that someone in this world would be astounded at what you have and how you're able to live. So let's read the rest of the passage. So this call is to you. We're going to read through the whole thing, and then we'll break it down again. It says, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, 
and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. As we sift through these very strong verses, I just want to clarify, we are not here to take a special offering at the end of service today. We're not trying to ultimately make you feel guilty and try to get more money out of you. The main point I want to get to today is that Jesus is not after your money. He is after your heart. And we will constantly come back to this idea because if you have to remember one thing today, remember that. And we're going to see this through four points as we go through uh, the message today. The first is that money is dangerous. It can be used for good, but it can also be used for much bad. And then the second point is that the heart is deceptive. In light of our first point, our heart has a tendency to use money for selfish needs and gains. And then our third point, where we bring those two together, the love of money is deadly. This is where those first two points meet. When we love money, it causes all kinds of wickedness. And this leads to our last point, that only the gospel can deliver us. We are hopeless in our use of money on our own and lean towards sin and selfishness. And it is only in the hope of Christ that we can see freedom from our selfish desires and misuses of money. If you did not write all that down, we will be going through each point again in a lot more detail. So back to the first point then, that money is dangerous. It's again, not necessarily bad, but it can be very dangerous. So who here likes dogs? You can raise your hand. This is an interactive uh, sermon. So if you like dogs, that's good. That's good. They're cuddly and nice. They can protect. They can warn. They can love you. But as Dan Green told us, uh, he learned pretty young that they can also bite. They can hurt. And in my experience with a dog that used to be at my house named Hutch, they can be, do some pretty weird and awful things. And in the same way, money is something that can be, wonderfully, can be a wonderfully used blessing but it can also be a dangerous weapon of destruction and on the spectrum, literally anything in between. And this fact does not mix well with our second point, that the heart is deceptive. Jeremiah 17.9 lays it out so beautifully that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? There is a battle going on in our souls, over our hearts and our souls, between the spirit and the flesh. The flesh being our desires for selfish things, sins, and pleasures of this world. And the spirit being the Holy Spirit that is trying to guide us towards what is good and righteous and pure. And our heart is easily drawn by those desires. Kevin mentioned this in his sermon back in James 1, one of them. We split it up to a few that temptation is an internal pressure. 
James 1.14 says it this way. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And this internal pressure that is driven uh, is driven by the desires of our heart, this flesh that I mentioned. And the reality is we live in a society whose advertisers understand this way too well and exploit this so much. We see, or digital marketing experts say that we see on average between four to 10,000 ads a day. How many people have already seen an ad today? All right, everyone who's not raising your hand, you're wrong, it's a trick question. There's at least like five up here on my laptop. So you see there are lots of opportunities to see ads all day. And the reality is they're constantly calling us to get new things, to get better things. Maybe you have a Pixel 4 and they're like, get a Pixel 6. Sorry, you guys aren't Android users. Maybe you have an iPhone 8 and they say, get an iPhone 10. You know, whatever it may be. Maybe your car isn't good enough. Your house could be better with this product. You just need to vacuum your floors for you, clean your windows for you. It just does everything, you know. Uh, dishwashing will be easier with this device. You could be happier. Have you seen the latest Marvel movie? It's so good. It'll make you just enjoy all the things they mesh together. Or maybe you've heard of the latest expansion of Catan. You should get that. That's a personal one. I don't know if you noticed. There's some Catan stickers on there. Sorry. Um, that, that one stings a little bit, but it's true. So the main idea, though, is that they're saying we need more of what we already have. We are called into discontentment. We are perpetually put in a, a state of desire to get more and have more. And media loves to play on our heartstrings to fulfill our desires. This industry is built on convincing our hearts of these things, and it deceives us because we have given into our desires, our flesh, and it tugs on our heart constantly. Guys, this is slavery. James 5 continues in verses 2 and 3, and it tells us how misery is coming, that your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Your riches will fade away. All things decay in this world and do not last forever. And we lay up treasures in the last day. We've trusted in the wrong thing, hoping to settle your anxieties with wealth. But here's the reality. What we do with our money reveals where our heart is. As has been pointed, many, uh, been pointed out many times in James, James lines up very similarly to the Sermon on the Mount. Kind of like if you listen to Matt Chandler's sermon, you'll see it lines up very similarly, mine does with his. Uh, you know, sometimes you copy things because they're good. So uh, with that, though, he says in Matthew 6, verses 19, uh, this is Jesus talking, and what James is uh, kind of paralleling through his book. And he says in verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Again, we see that the things of this earth will fade away. 
We are putting our hope in temporal things, things that are temporary. And guys, you can do whatever you want. You can say whatever you want, and we'll see that. But where your money goes shows what's really true. You want to know where your heart is? Look at your credit card statement, your receipts, or however you track your personal money trail. Because money is an MRI for the soul. An MRI takes a look at the body, and though everything may be fine on the outside, it reveals all the little intricacies and problems that may be going on inside of us. In the same way, money is an MRI for the soul, and it shows and reveals, even though things may look fine on the outside, it shows and reveals what is happening on the inside of our soul. Now, I want to clarify, this is not a way for you to start judging everyone and be like, give me your money statement, I want to tell how your heart is, or for uh, others to judge you, but for us to take an honest reflection at what matters most to us. When we look at that, what do we see about ourselves that can challenge us and call us to a life that is more worthy of what Christ has called us to? We use our finances mainly for two things, present hope and future hope. Presently, it might be having a nicer car, maybe moving to a nicer neighborhood, getting a better gym, living in a better dorm, maybe eating at better restaurants, or maybe it's just the simple needs of life, like buying clothes or shoes. Sometimes it's just the very basics, but we want the best of the basics that we can have. And we also look to future hope. A lot of us, as we're getting new jobs and maybe like in that stage of life as young professionals, uh, might be investing. 401ks, Roth IRAs, uh, stocks, things that I know very little about, but I'm learning slowly but surely. Maybe it's saving for a car or saving for the gap between semesters as you don't get money during those times. Uh, maybe it's for travels and vacations or in my case, saving for a camera a couple times so that I could buy a new camera. I do video work, you know, it's a good thing. <laughs> um, it could be saving for things that bring future hope that we don't yet have but want or need. And some people even just save to save. They just like to hoard. And now, don't get me wrong, it is okay and even important that we be good stewards and provide and to do some of these things. But it is not okay to put our hope in it, in this money, in these future hopes in this world. There's a perfect example and story of a man that puts his hope in the treasures in scripture, who has been titled the rich young ruler. His story is told a couple times, but we'll read out of Mark 10, verses 17 through 22. It says this, <clears throat> And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great 
possessions. This young man was faithful to do good. He was even eager to learn of how to do more good. The struggle was when he was challenged in his idol, which was money and wealth. He cared so much about it, he was not willing to give it up. Jesus saw this and he called him on it. Not because he wanted to get him and make him feel bad, but because Jesus was after his heart, just like he's after your heart. It says that Jesus saw him and he loved him. He cared enough to challenge where his heart was placed. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, Earthly goods deceive the human heart into believing that they give it security and freedom from worry. But in truth, they are what causes anxiety. In this struggle over our heart, our desire for things cause anxieties, and we fear losing these things. I mean, we talked about investments earlier. Who has been looking at all their investments lately and watching them slowly dwindle down? I mean, it should shoot back up, supposedly, but I'm going to be honest, it sure is stressful to, uh, to watch, especially when I've been talking to my dad, who's about to approach retirement and is looking at those things a little closely. So, or maybe like when you get your first car. I remember my last car was a 2002 Toyota Camry with 300,000 miles on it. Woo! It was a miracle that that thing ran uh, and went as far as it did. I took it to Colorado and back and all around. It was great. Um, but when I backed that car into a tree, I was like, eh, it wasn't worth much anyways. Like, what's going to happen? I don't plan to resell it. It's dead. You know, it's just a little dent on the back. A little bigger than little, but, you know, it's close enough. Um, but... Fast forward to last year, I got a newer car. It cost a little bit more. And there is a lot more protection for that one. So, you know, you be really careful when you park, when you first get that. And, you know, maybe park towards the back of the parking lot so no one can, like, scratch it on their way out uh, heading into uh, the store. And, oh, how the heart drops when you get that first scratch. That hurt, but alas, it happens. So there is a fear of losing things, fear of losing a value for things that is inherent in our hearts as we accumulate more. And as we buy more things, we build potential anxieties, which leads us then to our third point, that first, money is dangerous. Second, the heart is deceptive. And then these two merge together and the idea that the love of money is deadly. James 5 continues in verse 4 and says this, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Almost all crime is built upon money. The love of it and wanting more of it. It can make us cruel and selfish and become so uncivilized. There was a study at Berkeley that had people play Monopoly. I like Monopoly. It's a fun game. Hopefully some of you do too. A lot of you probably get aggravated at it. It takes a little while. But in this study, they rigged it so that one person would get wealthier than the other. And consistently, the more wealth accumulated, the meaner the wealthier person became to the other player. Another study, I looked up a lot of studies for this, this was fun. 
uh, from UCLA and Berkeley, professors found that as we grow wealthier, we value independence more and social connectedness less. As for the physical element of that, it's quite straightforward. The wealthier we become, the more likely we are to erect boundaries between ourselves and others. Guys, this isn't new. It is just affirming what the Bible just told us in James. How are we selfish? How do we use our wealth to take advantage of others and to be mean to others? James 5 says we might hold back honest wages from people. Now, a lot of us are not bosses in here, so we don't feel this directly relates to us. Some of you, you are. Um, but maybe it's just paying people for services fairly. Maybe this could simply be at a restaurant when we shirk on a tip to, uh, for our meals, when those people probably don't have as much as we get. Is that being generous like the Lord has called us to be? Are we being fair or trying to get the cheapest possible price all the time, even if it is at the detriment of other people and companies? That one hurts me personally because I love finding loopholes, but maybe we feel entitled because we have found those loopholes that we can exploit, but does that make it right? Do we care for the needy and the poor? How often do we pass the homeless and just avoid eye contact and try to do nothing for them? Sure, we might think we shouldn't give them cash to buy drugs or something, but do we care enough to use our resources to provide for them in other ways? It calls out those who live in luxury and in self-indulgence. We have fattened our hearts in the day of slaughter. Here is the heart again. Your heart is being a glutton for pleasure with your wealth. This is selfishness and it is sin. Because again, guys, this is what Jesus is after. He is after your heart. In Imago Dei, the idea that we are made in the image of God, we are made as eternal beings. So temporary things can never truly satisfy. If our sights are set on temporal things, we will always want more. Wealth will not satisfy. It will just leave us hungry for more. Here's another study. A Harvard business study did a test with 4,000 millionaires. So all these people had at least a million dollars, if not more. And they found that they were mostly happy. But in order for them to be perfectly happy, about 90% of them said they needed more. 50% of them said that in order to be perfect, they needed five to 10 times as much more money. Money might seem to help and provide certain freedoms, but it will never fully satisfy. You will always be left wanting more. The Bible provides a different solution. In 1 Timothy 6, which we went through a few months back, uh, in verses 6 through 8, it says this, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these things we will be content. Apparently, all we really need is food and clothing. Honestly, for me, that's really hard to hear, and I don't know what, that I would be satisfied with that, right? I've worked hard to get where I am. I've worked diligently, made money, and been able to buy the things that I have, and I deserve more than that. 
But this verse challenges us to really consider what do we really need to be content? It's easy to use money for us because we've earned it. It's mine. But God said he has given us all these things and all these things are his. Not just our, our treasures, but even our talents and our time have all been a gift from God that we use for him ultimately. 1 Timothy 6 continues in verse 9, and it says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into manly, senseless, and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Our desire to be rich is a snare. We won't feel rich because, again, we are trying to fill an eternal need with a temporal solution, and it leads to ruin and destruction. And the next verse, uh, verse 10 of 1 Timothy 6, hammers it away. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Again, money is not necessarily bad, but the reality is the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And oh, does that desire draw us away from Christ and is why some have even walked away from the faith. And the parable of the sowers, uh, Jesus puts it this way in Mark 4, 19. He says, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Riches deceive us to care for the things of this world and to draw people away from Christ. And now we sit here and we're left with this heavy weight. In the U.S., all of us stand here tugged at by the reality of being rich and of having these strains and hearing these truths and probably hurting and feeling not great. And again, it is not wrong or bad to be rich, but this can be hard and dangerous. In Mark 10, 25, Jesus even says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go to heaven. We are left seemingly in dire straits, which leads us to our hope and the final point in this reality that only the gospel can deliver us. Again, Jesus isn't after your money. He is after your heart. Everyone has preferred the creation over the creator. And what is God's response? God's response is generosity. He sends Jesus freely given that we might be free from the strains and weight of sin. Ephesians 2 beautifully tells us this reality and it starts in verse one. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. The gospel is generosity flowing from God. Now our primary identity is as sons and daughters of the king, of our savior who loves us, not our car, not our paycheck, not our clothes or what others think. It is in Christ alone. That is where our identity lies. And the second thing the gospel does is it calls us out of the mundane. In verse 10 of Ephesians 2, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are not just saved from, but to. We are sent out to push back against what is in the world and to use our time, our talents, and our treasures to push back against the selfish nature of the hearts of man and of this culture. We are called to be generous, to give to the poor, to help take care of widows and orphans, to be fair, to support God's kingdom getting built. John Piper put it really well in his uh, book, Don't Waste My Life. Don't Waste Your Life. I am wired by nature to love the same toys that the world loves. I start to fit in. I start to love what others love. I start to call earth home. Before you know it, I'm calling luxuries needs and I'm using my money just the way unbelievers do. I begin to forget the war. I don't think much about people perishing. Missions and unreached people drop out of my mind. I stop dreaming about the triumphs of grace. I sink into a secular mindset that looks first to what can man do, not what God can do. It is a terrible sickness. And I thank God for those who have forced me again and again toward a wartime mindset. War is an interesting thing. And I had the pleasure of actually talking to my grandma about this when she lived as a little girl during World War II, where people in this time for the need of the greater good of winning a war against an oppressive regime, they gave up goods. They gave up basic or some luxury needs and just lived off of basic needs for the sake of the greater purpose of winning a war. But with the rise of the selfie generation, we are robbing ourselves of the joy of being a part of something greater than ourselves. In Christ, we are called to a wartime mindset as a church to fight against this desire of the flesh and see a hope in Christ that is eternal and not temporal. Because again, we are to be generous. We are to give to the poor, to help take care of widows and orphans, to be fair and to support God's kingdom. Not just to feel good, but for this greater purpose, to reflect and image the generous God that we serve, that we just read about in Ephesians 2. So, in response to this, what can we do? First, we can repent. His call at the beginning of this chapter is, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. If you are sitting here and feel the weight and reality of how we have fallen short of this call, be honest before God. 
Repent of your selfish use of money. This is something that I'm going to be doing right alongside you guys because this is a struggle and a strain daily and inside of this culture, inside of this country. So we can repent of a lack of generosity. We can repent of times that we are not fair or honest. Repent of neglect of the poor and widows and orphans. Repent of selfishness and overconsumption of pleasure with our wealth and resources. And then after we repent, one of the things we can walk out of here and do is we can grow in financial wisdom. You don't have to be a genius, but we should be mindful of what we have and how we use it. We should seek counsel from godly, responsible people around us. And then the third is that we should pursue contentment. You have to fight for this. You are constantly being told to be discontent, but we should become acquainted with what we do have rather than wishing for something else that we don't have. I mean, how many of us as kids remember during Christmas, we'd get a toy and one day later we want a new toy. But the reality is the call is how can we be content with what we already have? And then the next call to action is that we can be generous. Learn to be open-handed and live generous lives. Even if it's small, a few bucks can go a long way to help someone. I listened to a sermon from Redeemer Church by Brett Rogers, and I really like what he said about this when he said, saving becomes hoarding when we have an insatiable desire for more wealth and when we're not sharing any of the wealth to meet needs for Christ's sake. Hoarding happens whenever God chooses to prosper me and I keep raising my standard of living instead of raising my standard of giving. I greatly appreciate Pastor Kevin in my life for being such a good example of this to me as a penny-pinching college student when he would help pay for coffee and meals every once in a while when we'd hang out. It was actually hot chocolate, but close enough. So, But in light of this, this is especially the opportunities to build God's kingdom as we give and be generous. How can we be supporting opportunities overseas where they're trying to share the gospel and spread it to nations that have never heard of the good news? Maybe it's for church plants of people who are starting to reach areas, even in the United States or across the world, where people need to hear the good news. And even other opportunities of spreading that love and hope in some of the darkest places, even here in town, like supporting Sira or Created, who are reaching people in some of the darkest situations. And then the last way we can be generous is we can tithe. This is how we support our local church and the community at large through our church. And lastly, now we're going to take some time in communion to reflect on and lay at the foot of the cross. So if you have not grabbed a communion packet and you are a believer here with us and you want to celebrate what Christ has done for us, I encourage you now to go to the back and grab a communion packet. The gospel is what we celebrate by taking communion. And it is the hope of Christ with the reality that we were created as eternal beings to find satisfaction in God alone. But because of sin, we're now dead in that sin. Our desires to find contentment were in wealth and temporal things, to hoard and accumulate here and now, not for God. But God, being rich in mercy, sent Jesus to pay for that sin and take care of the needy. 
as a generous gift from him that is transferring our trust to Christ. We can let go of our desires for selfish things and find true godliness with contentment in him. If you have not trusted in Jesus, I urge you, please don't wait. Nothing on this earth will fully satisfy. Only God can truly satisfy and bring hope. All you have to do is pray, God, I choose to trust you over anything else as my Savior and Lord. And then tell somebody, let them celebrate this huge decision with you. And if you're a believer, take some time to reflect on the gospel now and the hope that Jesus brings and that he's paid for the penalty of our sin and selfishness with his blood and body, which is represented by this uh, wafer and juice. He paid for your and my dishonesty your and our failure to be fair, our selfishness and lack of generosity for the times that we have chosen to care for ourselves more than others. And we can lay those convictions at the cross. He died that you might be free from these weights and can walk forward in new life. Freedom that we can be fair to be generous, to provide for the needy, and to no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for our sake died and was raised. And then in your own time, I encourage you, as you reflect on this, as you pray and repent, then to, as a believer, to celebrate the blood and body of Christ by taking this wafer and juice. There's nothing special about this wafer and juice, but it's a symbol of worship to say, thank you, Jesus, for your generous sacrifice of your body and blood for us.